0: All right, so let's get started um welcome welcome to this panel uh we we named it uh who gives a shit about indie music in a in no in a manner to essentially um, call your attention and also uh, try to create a dialogue um i think that what's common among ourselves here um is that indie music is much more than a business for us. It's a purpose. It's a strong belief that indie music and indie artists are contributing to culture. In fact, they are critical to culture. They're making culture. So if there are some artists in the room, you need to know that this panel is uh, for you. Uh, we love you. We admire you. We respect you. And if anything, we want to help you. So um, we're here also to answer questions. We're, we, we, we discussed the idea of um trying to keep this conversation relatively short, like maybe half an hour max, we have an hour together, um, and then give you the opportunity to ask questions. So I know it's always hard to get questions from the room, so please make an effort to really start thinking about them now and and prepare them so that uh, we can have a productive uh, discussion as well with you and we can answer your questions and try to be helpful today. Is that okay? Sounds good? Great. All right. So I'm Fabrice Sergent. I'm co founder and CEO of Benz in Town. And I would like to let uh, my co panelists introduce themselves. Maybe uh, Trey, do you want to start? Sure. Yeah. My
1: name is Trey Manny. Uh, I'm a music agent at Wasserman Music, which is a relatively new company that's a part of a bigger company. Uh, I'm based in Los Angeles. And,
0: and pe- maybe I didn't say, but tell us in a word what comes to mind when you hear indie music or in the artist.
1: Uh, it's it's an interesting mix of things because, you know, I don't think it's just defined by indie rock, you know, as like a genre the way it sounds, but that's part of it for me. I mean, that's what I specialize in. And as far as the music that I, uh, artists that I represent would be like Beach House, Lord Huron, Death Cab for Cutie, Fleet Foxes, artists that are in that mm-hmm. genre. But then I also think of indie music, meaning like very much do it yourself, self-starting musicians, that uh, you know, kind of the genesis of their career is you know in bedrooms, basements, garages, that kind of thing, and it doesn't have to sound a certain way, but it's sort of like a DIY, maybe punk ethos, so and again, not necessarily sounding like punk rock. It can be any genre. So that's
0: that's so a state punk. of mind. Right. Yeah, da- state of da- mind. Dana, welcome.
2: Thanks. Uh, my name is Dana Frank. I'm the owner CEO of First Avenue, uh, a music venue in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, we also promote. Uh, we do about 1,200 shows a year, all focused in Minneapolis-St. Paul, Minnesota area. We have six rooms that we own and operate, um, and proudly independent. And at the shutdown of the COVID, uh, at the beginning of the COVID shutdowns, uh, worked with some friends to found the National Independent Venue Association that ran the Save Our Stages campaign.
0: Robbie, welcome.
3: Hey, um, yeah, I'm Robbie, I work at Secretly Group, which is an independent uh, label group based, founded in Bloomington, but based uh, all over the world. Um, I work in our Brooklyn office. Um, The labels include Jag Jaguar, Dead Oceans, Secretly Canadian, and the Satisfactory uh, Records. Um, And, yeah, independent label group. Um, I've been there for about five years. Before that, I was at Matador. I spent some time at Domino Publishing as well. So,
0: been in the independent space for a while now. What say a word about what you consider being independent or indie music or indie artists?
3: Yeah, I mean, independent being the key word. I think you know maybe it's not about where or how your repertoire is managed or distributed or whatever. But it, again, it goes back to that thing about ethos, which I think we'll spend a lot of time talking about today.
0: Great. OK, thank you. So welcome. Um, before we dive in um, we, we, and we will explore essentially the challenges and the opportunities that are right now uh, facing um, in the music and in the artists in general, let me share with you some data points that I can bring to this conversation from uh, uh, the data we, we have at Benzintown. So we bring together half a million artists and 76 million registered users. And we see a lot of patterns and, and things going on. Um, on the w- what what we see as a very interesting trend is that in 2022, artists of less than hundred thousand followers on Benzintown played on average 15% more shows than they used to in 2019 before the pandemic. So we think that from if we qualify indie as being on the rise, developing, and are at relatively earlier stage than a later stage. So for us, it would be a less than a hundred thousand follower. That's a good indication to, to show and we will discuss it to suggest that um, uh, in 2022, there were more opportunities than in 2019 prior to the pandemic. Uh, the other thing that uh, we're seeing is that um, fans are willing to go to more concerts in 2023 than they did in 2022. And that despite the fact that price uh, for ticket prices are rising, uh, we see the a very significant impact of uh, inflation and we'll discuss rising cost of touring on ticketing, but there is no elasticity. So we made a survey where we got um, 2,200 fans participates to a panel and they admitted that in 2023, so 50% of them want to go to as many shows as in 2022 and about 30% of them want to go to more shows. So there are more fans that want... So fans want to go to the same number of shows or more shows in 2023 versus 2022. And and that's, uh, And then there was um, an interesting answer, which I'm sure we will all relate to, which is that more than three quarters of the fans said that they are ready to cut spending on clothing, on food, on really essential things, um before um before cutting on their concert spend uh in twenty twenty three. So they're anticipating recessions, inflations and all the things that the economy unfortunately is bringing to us, uh fans seems to be uh still crave live music and music in general, uh and that's also I think it's good news for indie artists and indie music because all tide all um yes, all you said that, that all tide uh, raise all boat? Is that uh
1: uh, rising tide result all those. Yeah,
0: sorry. It's sometimes I, I, have to get support. Uh, all right. So yeah. So that's I. We find that also very, very uh, suppo- supporting. If if anything, in term of trends, in term of um, uh, music streaming, uh, indie. What is qualified as being indie, is definitely on the rise. It's this is not new. Actually, it's been constantly the market share of indie music <coughs> being streamed. Um, on Spotify and other platforms has been constantly increasing uh, probably because it's also in the best interest of the platforms to do so because that helps them maybe manage uh, their um, but on the other hand um, as you may know the number of tracks dropped on these platforms every day it's about 100,000 on Spotify for example have been increasing also tremendously so if all together, indie music has been on the rise on streaming. It's ever more fragmented. It's more fragmented than ever. So that's, that's, you know, that's definitely a challenge as well. So with this being said, why don't we start by discussing <coughs> what are, from each of you, so we have an, an agent, venues, and promoter, and label. From your own perspective, how do you see the challenges that um, indie artists or indie music are facing in 2023. I mean,
1: it's definitely, you know, some of the stuff you referenced as far as the rising costs. Um, you know, the ticket prices are on the rise, but if we're talking specifically about like small clubs and venues, maybe under a thousand or under 1500, which is most of what First Avenue works in, um, those ticket prices, you know, in my career kind of don't they've remained relatively stagnant, you know, like they've stuck in this one zone. And it's it's hard. Uh it's the costs are going up, but the ticket prices aren't going up at the same rate. So like you know, like a, a club ticket, you know, like for a 250 cap club, I don't know, would you say Seventh Street probably like which is their two hundred and fifty cap club is like fifteen dollars is like a normal ticket price. But selling 250 tickets at $15 a head with the way the deal works, and your deal is a good deal, um, it's, it's not enough to get by for, for artists on the road, You know, with the cost of lodging and travel and, every, and food. So <clears throat> people are upset about the rise of ticket prices and it usually the, the things that make the news are not relevant to this specific discussion. If we're talking about artists that are starting out these aren't the tickets that are going for $3,000. This is like an artist where like being able to set the baseline of ticket prices at something closer to $25, even at a small club, would be a huge help to new artists, but that's a tough sell for consumers. Um, so it's, it's sort of this double-edged sword that, that I see where uh, rising costs and then the ticket prices on the entry level not being able to rise as quickly as those.
0: You know,
2: I mean, I think a huge, and I'm not an artist, so I'm gonna speak, and you guys can all correct me if I'm wrong. But like, I would imagine the level of the necessary content creation to stay at the top of the feeds and the top of the algorithms is just mentally and creatively exhausting, right? And like, also the pressures of being on the road. It's it was always hard. And then you take 18 months or two years off and to have to reintegrate into the culture of touring and the culture of clubs and music and drinking and nightlife, et cetera. It, it's, I think it's been a real kind of mind fucker, like mental shift that we're still, as a culture, still, still getting our feet wet and still working on how to mentally and like physically adapt post-COVID. Yeah, and there's
0: been a lot of contribution from the artists themselves on this topic, which is indeed uh, hard to understand when you're not necessarily um, an artist yourself or close to the artist scene, because, um, but it's, it's hard to be a storyteller, a fantastic talent, um, sometimes a manager, or sometimes an agent. I mean, this is a lot of skills for the same person sometimes.
2: Yeah, and the whole, the whole concept of being independent means you do it for yourself, you are responsible for yourself, you are in charge of yourself, which it means you have a team, but also you are solely responsible for you know your level of success and your level of comfort in your environment, which is really powerful, and I think probably why a lot of us choose to stay independent, right? Because you're accountable to yourself, you're accountable to your community, you know, um, but at the same time, there's very few kind of like fallbacks or, or safety nets when when you choose to be independent.
0: Robbie,
3: yeah, that's I love that. I, and to piggyback off that, I think, you know, I think you used the word fragmentation before. And I think, although there's so many more opportunities to kind of, kind of, grab the reins and do stuff yourself, do, harness that DIY spirit. There's so much of it out there. So we could talk about TikTok, you know, which is, you know, we, we could talk about it till we're blue in the face. But I think about something like Bandcamp, which is an, an amazing platform, you know, a beautiful platform, and the the, the way it works is is incredible, and it allows for that DIY spirit and makes it really easy to release and discover music. But there's also a lot of music on there. And, you know, I think you can go on there and you can, you know, you can press up 500 copies of an LP. You can release your music digitally, and you might sell through all of that because your, fa- your fans are on there. Um, you're playing shows in your local, your local scene, and people are buying and discovering your music. But there is someone doing just as well. On the platform too, so I think just kind of cutting through the noise, and you know, finding places, you know, and kind of doing all of those things and having to do all of those things, yeah. Again, I'm not an artist, but
1: it seems like, it seems like a lot of work. Well, and and I think you know we can, we can spend a lot of time complaining about algorithms too. That's an issue, but there it it feels like, because there is so much music and because there's so much content, we need some form of curation. And I feel like now we're relying more on algorithms for curation than we are on media outlets, you know, like getting, you know, getting Best New Music on Pitchfork doesn't mean the same thing now as it did 10 years ago. Um, and, and I would say that Pitchfork is still very relevant and still very important, but there haven't been like 10 other things that popped up in 10 other genre spaces that I'm aware of that help curate. And I, I feel like human cura- there's a lack of human curation that it is is a part of that fragmentation, in my opinion. This is a
2: perfect segue for me to talk about Neva's live list.
1: Ooh, yes, please talent, tell us, Dana.
2: Independent talent buyers' favorite up-and-coming uh, live acts not to miss in 2023, coming to uh, the Parish of the Day party right after this. Just a little plug.
0: Shameless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's and so curation is part of the curation happens uh, still by when when you're. Um, booking and and in fact in live music curation happens uh to you know and still human as far as i know um so For do now. you find <laughs> yeah we we'll we'll touch upon ai and chat gpt at the end of this conversation i'm sure but it te- tell us do you think that it's is it easier than pre-pandemic or wh- wh- to to book independent artists and to to try to convince venues to to take risk, or or is it more challenging these days?
1: Um, I I would say um, I don't know if I I don't I can't remember the olden days of pre-pandemic, <clears throat> but I don't I don't know that it's I think it's probably gradually become more challenging because again there like the good side of it is there are fewer barriers to music creation and releasing music on Bandcamp and those platforms, but um, there are still the you know relatively the same number of slots to play on this relatively same number of venues you know thankfully i mean you probably have better data on this than i do but there were a lot of venues that closed a lot of them made it through thank god um but i wouldn't say that we have 25% more venues now than we did before definitely not uh so it's still like in relative terms there's still and in any market there's like if it's if a new artist wants to play there's like two or three small clubs, 250 cap clubs. That hasn't changed as far as I know. It's not they're not like way more. They're probably a little bit less. So, in that sense, it's more challenging because there are only seven nights in a week, you know, each one of those shows that happen if a venue is playing seven doing seven shows a week, which they probably shouldn't for their own mental health. The same number of slots exist and it's there are more artists vying for that. So, in that sense, I would say more challenging. Long answer.
2: Which is what's really interesting because there's also not more people going to shows, right? right? And so what we saw in 2022, you know, after, you know, January and February, we lost because of Omicron. Everyone went out on the road, but people didn't buy more tickets because there were more shows. They were, in fact, even, like, more selective. And so the shows were underperforming in a lot of cases. So then everyone pulled back, and now it feels like Q1 2023, there's fewer shows, but the shows are doing better And so it feels like everyone's still kind of getting their footing post-COVID, what what the kind of industry norms are going to be.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was definitely, in 22, there was oversaturation. The end of 21 was great, because there weren't that many bands on the road. Felt like everything was selling out. But then 2022, there were shows. I mean, like, we had a Death Cab for Cutie show in New York at Forest Hills. And the same night, Pavement was playing at King's, which is a 2,800-cap venue. And then Killers moved there. COVID postponed shows to Madison Square Garden on the same night. So on one night, it's Killers, Death Cab, Pavement, which is like a pretty narrow lane of like alt rock, mix of alt rock and indie rock, and the kings of indie rock pavement. It's like, it, it's tough, it's tough. So saturation is an issue, Oversaturation, fragmentation lead to difficulties on the road.
0: And Robbie, <clears throat> when today is, is um, what's the role of the la- your label, right? So. You have a specific, uh, um, an important role in in developing artists at an early stage, uh, or at at least and at, at, uh, as an independent label. Do you do you think it's it's more in, you're taking more risk these days, or what? Are you getting more more artists on 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 board because of the explosion of the consumption on on streaming, for example?
3: I think so. I think you know. You kind of have to take risks at at, at the level we are just because you know, it's all about developing artists. It's all about finding something that's unique and, and kind of pouring gasoline on their best uh, attributes um as artists. Um but um yeah, I mean I feel like sorry, um I'm trying to remember the question, but uh
0: do, do you feel that you take you're taking you're you're eager to take risks and onboarding new artists Absolutely, in 2023.
3: Yeah. I, mean, I I feel like, you know, I, what's interesting is that there are, again, to talk about the ways that artists are getting discovered and signed, you know, I think there are some things that we're reading a lot about, like whether it's a viral song or a viral sound even. Um, those, are not, those are things that we look at. We don't have a data team that's like kind of wa- watching spikes on TikTok, but we do look at a way an artist... Interacts with their audience, um, the way they interacted with their audience when they couldn't go out and play shows, and 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 you know, the more innovative or the more creative they can be, it, it certainly helps. Um, I think what's interesting is that a lot of other labels are taking risks as well, um, and are maybe taking risks a lot fa- faster. And I mainly mean major labels. So I think that you know, with the kind of with the prol- proliferation of v- viral music and viral sounds on TikTok things are happening so much faster and artists are getting signed um, off of a sound or a song. Um, and I think that a lot of them are missing that development kind of um, moment or that long kind of trajectory that we kind of like enjoy and that, that we kind of slowly brick by brick build. Um, I think a lot of, you know, it's funny because I think a lot of labels are taking risks on artists but not doing the crucial stuff to build things up. You know, we talked about before the fact that a lot of artists are getting signed who haven't played showed, shows, you know, or you know, thinking about something like South by, where you come and play a bunch of shows, you know. Um, some of the kind of crucial stepping stones to to development, you know, were either forgotten or we had to figure out other ways to do it because of the pandemic. But um, it also makes things more exciting, and I think you know allows us to be more inventive with what we're doing and who we're signing.
1: I'm- Something you said made me curious you, I and I have heard the same thing major labels taking risks at earlier stages and The one of the things I've heard of major labels doing a lot of now is they'll sign an artist for 10 songs You or know one, or once yeah. Right now. I mean not you may you're not able to say but like Are you still in the model of like signing artists for a record or X number of records? Or is there do you do song deals that we haven't yet? Um, we've lost deals because we we
3: haven't figured out a song deal structure that that works for us but uh we certainly wouldn't rule it out
0: yeah look at that that's the reason why uh, you're so special is because you you apply an incredible taste to your to your roster i'm not saying that the others don't obviously they all believe they do but secretly is very very special and your roster is so incredible and you have a a level of selection that is uh Extremely demanding <laughs> in a way, uh, but that's to go back to your point on curation. That's probably what some what consumers need um, at this point. It is, uh, so. We we touched upon um, curation. Let's talk about discovery. And and we we if there's less curation or at least curation is less respected or or probably checked by, by consumers that it used to be. So consumers used to read the magazines and whatever as, as a Bible to discover new music. Um, do you see that as you know, this evolution toward digital? Is this evolution toward digital a challenge for discovery? And, and so we talk about de-local, delocalization. <laughs> uh, how, do we, how do we foster discovery these days if there's less curation? Um,
1: I mean, it's a challenge for me having less human curation on the side, like uh, as far as media is concerned, critics and music critics. And, you know, for me, when I was growing up, it would be like, go to the record store, ask the person behind the counter, like, okay, I like this, what else would I like? And there's less of that. I feel like now, if I'm going to a music store to buy something, it's because I already love the record and I want to have a physical copy of it. It's like a, a token. I mean, I, I love mm-hmm. vinyl, so I listen to okay. it. But it's you know, um, but it's challenging for me that there's less critic, music critic curation um, because I'm not as good at consuming music digitally from the the feed. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other people in my office that are very good at that. Um, so for me, it's I'm kind of leaning back into more human discovery referrals, asking people you know asking local promoters you know who's you know who's doing really well in the scene in Minneapolis or you know local artists and managers labels you know it's kind of leaning on the you know these people here with us right now <laughs> for the curation um, and I think I, I mean I, I don't want to speak for you but I think some of that comes in our direction too I know that you know I've had labels say like oh yeah knowing who the agent was made it easier decision whether or not it's science we know there's gonna be a touring strategy in place and stuff like that so that's my experience on curation challenges.
0: Yeah, uh, you pointed out this, this, this issue of delocalization. I'd love you to elaborate on that.
2: Yeah, um, it's been really interesting post-COVID again. It seems like the local scenes are very much dissipating, you know, like before COVID, it seems like, you know, uh, people would, you know, our local artists get together Create music, they'd collaborate, kind of mix and match, and you have like very like localized sounds. And you know, after COVID, amongst a lot of the folks that I talked to, like doesn't seem like there's really any city in the country right now that has like a really like solid or very specific local scene. Um, and I th- think that was always a huge way of discovering music, right? Like, you know, we'd have agents like, okay, who's you know, who's the Minneapolis scene kind of up-and-comers, like, you know, Hippocampus or Lizzo came out of Minneapolis. And now, you know, we... There's, I think, a stereo gum list of the top, you know, 20 new artists, and there's one artist from Minneapolis, like, who had never played a show. And we're like, oh, my God. we It's like, how do you discover, even in your hometown, if they're not, you know, if there's no scene and they're not playing shows? Um, but I don't know. It seems like most, like... Spotify, right, is the kind of music discovery tool, the playlists. Um, I always like to look at who's opening for the bands that I like to see. You know, I always try to encourage people, like, go see the opener, the first of three, because, that you know, it's been hand-selected and a really good way of just finding those bands, and you already paid for the ticket anyway, so.
0: Is it, is it a shared feeling? Can you raise your hand if you feel that where you live, there's less local scene and it's harder to discover? Emerging artist okay Robbie so how do you how do you discover them
3: i think I think what Trey was saying about kind of just the conversation and maybe getting a cosign from someone you trust, and it doesn't need to be an an established booking agent or manager. it could be getting a opening slot at a at a great venue um, it could be uh being on Bandcamp daily to bring that back up. It could be a Spotify playlist. I, you know, I think those there are power in those. Um, there, there is power in the algorithm. It's, it's frightening. But you know, if you're listening and you're listening actively instead of passively, you might hear something that that works. You know, and that that you love. Um, I think with content creation again, it's I, you know again, I really sympathize with the the artists out there who are kind of feel feeling the need to feed the beast of of kind of what's required or what, you know, people say is required, but it's also really, it's much easier to make great content and make unique content now. Um, so, you know, it's seeing what, you know, I think, a lot, you know, artists are getting discovered because of 30-second clips of them playing guitar, and that's a pretty honest, pure way of of expressing yourself, and you kind of can't mess with that, you know. I, I, I might roll my eyes a bit more at, at dance trend, but I think... Uh, and artists playing their heart out on whatever platform is still really salient.
0: Yeah, so that's, so indeed, uh, if we evo- evolve this conversation from challenges to opportunities, what you all seem to mention is that there are less barriers to entry to a certain degree in terms of production, in terms of, um, um, let's say, visibility, to, to uh, at least uh, to getting out there. Um, I can share with you uh, also a, a stats from our data. From our data, last year <coughs> we got 40% more engagement on artists of less than 100,000 followers um, than in 2019, and I, I think that we try to understand why. I mean, besides the fact that there was a lot of interest uh, from the fans to uh, go to concerts and they wanted to uh, obviously find tickets. But, (coughs) and we send about 12 million people to buy tickets every month from Benzintown to... And half of these people go to buy tickets of artists of less than 200,000 followers. So we're pretty good actually at recommending shows for artists that are relatively small. And that's the algorithm actually. Now, uh, what we saw is this increase. And so part of that comes from the fact that not all fans can afford paying the, um, the price of a ticket to go see a pop act you know it's getting fairly expensive i mean the taylor swift thing is self explanatory so so for 200 bucks you may get one ticket at madison square garden but you may also get uh you know 10 tickets uh at uh, smaller venues and also uh not all uh, fans actually um really um can afford uh spending that much and and they see Inflation and rising costs I mean of everything as a as a threat, so they are way more mindful on how they spend their money, even though they want they still want to go to concerts, but they also are cost conscious and they were already last year, I think so that that may that may have explained that engagement and lastly but and I think last last but not least, a lot of these big concerts got sold out very quickly, right so and that's an issue <laughs> even if you can afford paying for the tickets and so we see this year the same trends shows are selling out very especially large shows in large cities are selling out very quickly um, i can share with you good good kpis uh, there seems to be like plus 70 percent versus last year in january and february in terms of ticket sales plus 70 percent so it's still going very very strong there are a lot of content out there and it seems to be the case also for 2024 that's things that are coming up are very strong so yes we talked a lot about the challenges facing indie music and indie artists but the opportunities are really high <laughs> right so do, do you see that that trend going on right now do you see a lot of um, good signals for the live music scene in 2023
1: yeah i mean i think that um you know like you said you know the Ticketing is a, is a huge challenge, um, but as far as opportunities go, I mean, yeah, it's even though costs are rising, you know, uh, the thank God the demand is still really strong for live music, you know, um, otherwise I wouldn't have a job. So, um, and, you know, that was like the existential crisis that I was having almost three years ago exactly to this day uh, was, you know, okay, will, you know, like live music, is relatively recession proof but it's definitely not pandemic proof <laughs> um, obviously but the good news is people value going out to see things in person it's still you know people want to listen to music at home and then playlists and, and in their car but they also when it's important enough they do really want to be in the same room as the artist that's making that music so that to me is a just signals a great opportunity for us. That it's, as humans, we still care about that. Um, and that doesn't mean that it's any easier. There are some barriers that we talked about that are, there are fewer barriers. Uh, it's harder to stand out, but the, uh, the opportunity is still there. If you make great music that people connect with, they want to see you play. And, and I'm, I'm excited about that. That's still around. So.
0: Then maybe from your Niva perspective, <laughs> for a second, how do you see 2023 shaping up?
2: It, there's a lot of positives, without a doubt, you know, like Trey said. It seems like the shows that are doing well are doing really, really well, and as you guys probably have all seen, like, can charge whatever they want, and people will buy it, and then the shows that aren't doing well, normally where you, you know, maybe you'd get a, a kind of baseline of six, 700 people, are not selling anything, so it seems like way, like way more streaky um, than it was before, like just super hot, and I don't know, we haven't cracked the algorithm, so I'm, I'm not quite sure you know, how that's determined or not, but um, yeah, it's definitely lots and lots of positives, but also harder.
1: I, I have a question. I mean, this is something I think about all the time as an agent. Like, the, you know, the hope is that every show sells out, You know, When I book a show, I'm like, man, I hope this sells out. But the reality is, if it just sells out right away, then probably the room is too small. Then there are other factors as far as bots and things like that that we can talk about ad nauseum. But what is like, you know, I think a show that's selling like 70% capacity is still pretty good. I mean, and I don't know, I'm sure it's different for every show and costs and stuff like that, but like where do you feel like when does when do you feel good as an uh, as an owner about these things you know it doesn't it doesn't have to be sold out to be good but do you agree with that statement i guess first of all
2: yeah i think we're probably at you know 75% is kind of a break even 70 to 75% so if you're at 60% um that's not great and you're right if it's it's a really difficult situation right because if it sells out right away kind of no one's happy, right? The fans maybe couldn't get the tickets. Maybe it got somehow onto, like, the broker, uh, you radar.
1: know, th- yeah, the broker yeah.
2: radar, and it all is now on the second, you know, flooding the secondary. Um, or it should have been a bigger room, or right. prices should have been higher. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's great to have a sold-out show, you know, so maybe our industry should just sometimes be happy. I don't know.
0: Sure. <laughs> Robbie, do you see more I mean you, you're probably here the closest to representing the artists themselves uh, so um, I do you feel that there are more opportun- the opportunities also come from the ability to control your own fan base to acquire first party data to uh, also you know gain regain control over the social platforms Is this something that you you work on as as the label and with the management companies?
3: Yeah, it's funny because I'm sitting here, and you know, I, it's it's amazing to hear that things are kind of rebuilding in the live sector, and things are you know hopefully getting back to kind of where they were. But for us, and I, I you know, I hate to sound glib about this, but the pandemic was kind of okay for the recorded side of music because yeah, what are you doing but sitting at home and streaming music and buying merch? Um, and you know, we did a lot of really great work, and I think a lot of our artists, you know, it's it's it's. Again, it, it, it's going to come out wrong, but you know, benefited in a way from being able to express themselves online and being able to really harness those communities and really embrace social media and and other platforms to build those audiences. So, coming out of that, moving that over into live, you know, I think that the head of Steam is has been incredible to the extent where we're kind of learning to re uh, readjust to the world in which. We do have to build kind of strategic campaigns around tours, when records come out, when we're releasing singles, et cetera. Um, we're kind of relearning some of those old things, which has also been great because I'm glad it's all there to do again. Um, but yeah, after the you know after the pandemic, with you know the like explosion of things like Discord and the thing, things like Reddit, you know, um, where fans did commune online, I think that's stuff that we're, we're, we're kind of catching up on as well. I, you know, mm-hmm. we work with a lot of artists that have very active fan bases online um and learning to interact with those communities and kind of you know reward them for their for their fandom it's a delicate balance because you don't want to come off as a cheesy marketing company you want to do it delicately and with grace and but yeah at the end of the day it's like um yeah we've invested in a big way in, in social media in um in Creating content to put on social media, um, and you know, helping our artists kind of just explode out those ideas that they might have in those spaces.
0: Yeah, we we see a lot of initiatives going on on the on and especially on the tech side to essentially empower artists to own and have a direct access to their community, and social media is one aspect of it. Um, I would say that even could be a dangerous aspect of it, as you see that. Facebook is not what it used to be. Instagram is where it is, and TikTok may be shut down by the U.S. government tomorrow. Right? So there's a law that passed last week that uh, enables officially. Um, it's not like words that are um, said on, on a campaign trail by, uh, uh, by 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 some people that are irresponsible. It's really by by in this case by the U.S. Congress that took a decision pass that law and and honestly i think it's can it can rehappen. happen so artists are really i think the pandemic helped artists realize that um it's super important there's no sustainable future if you don't control and if you don't own your own uh, first party data and your own audience um, and so if i'm summarizing here what i'm hearing is that so after years and years of uh issues recorded music is is, um, is, is really strong and, 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 and on fire on all fronts. And then live music is back. So after talking about half an hour about all the challenges, guess what? There are many opportunities. And you should feel really good about this year and the way it, and it's shaping up. Um, maybe that's the time to switch. We said that we would uh, reserve enough time for questions. Um, there's a mic over there. And so technically, you're supposed to go to the mic to ask your question. But if you just stand up, speak loud, and say who you are, um, we will take any questions. So don't be shy. Who wants to start? Sure. Um, hi, my name is Mary Clark. I
2: am the chief operator and advisor for College Radio Station at the University of Kentucky. Um, so, my question.
0: I'm going to repeat the question so everyone hears are there anything new that media outlets are doing to support independent music or would what would you expect from media outlets to help support independent music
1: um, I well first of all, I think college radio is a hugely important you know um, part of the ecosystem uh, it certainly influences me uh, I mean the two big stations that I listen to. Don't they're not as student-run as others at KCRW uh, and KEXP in Seattle, um, but that I guess that I would, as an agent uh, trying to both discover new artists and help them develop their careers, I guess I would just I would love to be a little more plugged, get plugged back into um, college radio stations and what they're doing, what they're working on, uh, what campuses, because I, I do think that that's definitely. A place where a local scene can thrive. Um, uh, I used to book a lot of college shows, and a lot of those college shows would be, you know, sort of curated by the lo- uh, by the radio stations. It feels like a lot of universities, and this is just my perspective. I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Um, the radio station and the campus advisory or campus like events board feel very separate, and it's you know what's being booked is just basically what's the most popular dj we can get for this party that's going to happen in the quad or whatever and i would love to have more connection with um campus radio stations that are you know using campus venues to help support the music scene that's happening on campus or you know artists that maybe aren't students but just that your radio station loves so that that's my perspective do you have some
3: yeah i love that i mean a former college radio music director myself you know i think um There was a funny thing that happened when I was in college. Uh, Paper Magazine, which is like this cool kind of arts and events magazine in New York, said we talked to some tastemakers in New York. And they asked me as a music director what I was going to see at CMJ that year. And I was like, tastemaker, gross. (laughs) No, and I guess maybe the new word for that is influencer, right? But y'all are influencers. And you know, I think that the college radio, the kids at the college radio station are the coolest kids on campus. they know the most about music because they're, they're getting served new music by record labels and promotions companies. They're working on it. They're listening to it. They're playing it on the radio. Talk about that. I mean, I, I think that use that platform and that opportunity that you have to just spread the word. I mean, I even think at like a very kind of grassroots level, word of mouth, talking to your friends, like that, that's what leads to those big big sold-out shows on college campuses or in a local a local market um, where there's a big college community. So, yeah, that's awesome.
1: Danny, you're connected to, is it The Current? Is that one of the stations that you kind of rely on?
2: Yeah, The Current's the, like, the NPR station. Radio K is our college station. Um, love doing shows, showcases. And I think college radio, like, there was a while where, like, every employee we had at First Avenue kind of came out of Radio K and just, like, fostering that community of both like music workers, future music workers, concert goers, and really you know, t- like using the resources of the radio to to foster really that community and you know, encouraging collaboration and um, you know people just working together and getting to know each other and building up that local scene. I do think in a lot of ways it. You know, like in Minneapolis, it came from, St. Paul, I should say, it came from like, the, there's a McAllister scene, and then there was like a University of Minnesota scene, but like college campuses can be so influential in
0: that. Actually, do you create a playlist on, on, on platforms? Bit, yeah, because that's, we were talking about curation. It's true that some of the people who really know some college radios, uh, even way beyond and after college, would continue to listen to it because they think that this, this is where the music starts, right? Um, but it would be probably great to bring all these college radios to other platforms so that it becomes really accessible to people that are not on campus anymore. And that then you can create a name for yourself. Um, great. Another question? Yeah. I'm going to come to the mic. So I'm, uh, I'm not sure we hear you. Is it on? Is the mic on? Hello? Okay. You know it's you that, that that's life. It's it's that's not a fine. it's life.
4: Um okay, so I work at Royal, which is a music rights marketplace where fans can invest in artists they believe in. Um I really loved the question about regaining control of your audience and first-party data. What do you think is the best way for artists to capture contact info from the fans that are attending their concerts?
1: Uh I mean from Bands and Towns' perspective, how, how do you? I, I have, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't.
0: well, first of all, I think it's, it's great to be conscious of this challenge, right? Because many artists, correct me if I'm wrong, have been touring for years, for a long, long time, uh, without really even thinking of uh, getting this data and and being able to do something with this data like selling merch or doing even th- sending a thank you note after the show is not a common practice and we're trying to foster it and to incentivize bands to do so but it's not really the culture right you don't you don't receive a thank you note after the show necessarily so um yeah so the first thing is that there's an awakening around that and there are definitely new ticketing companies um that are more open to sharing with the band um, there are new technologies uh and you're you're coming from the web 3 world uh definitely uh uh we we have actually a solution to do that to capture um first party data on site with fans checking in um from from uh from from the venue so there are there are there are, there are ways to to foster that um it's super important to do it uh, one way or the other so um, it was maybe sometimes it's discount on merch. You have to give an incentive for the fans to leave their, their their details. But
2: ask ask your promoter for your ticket buyer info. I mean, maybe my promoter friends in the crowd. I think most independents share that data, but you know, as an artist, ask them for it. You know,
1: and we I, I represent a number of artists that ask me to ask for this data. Um, and some promoters are willing to share it a lot. I mean, technically, most ticketing agreements prohibit the venue or the promoter from sharing this with the artist. Um, I would love to squash that, but you know, I'm also not the one. And I mean, venues, you know, especially it's like I, I appreciate the fact that like part of the way that venues are able to keep their doors open is by signing these lucrative ticketing contracts. So, but there are uh, companies like Seated. Um, where you can do uh, artist signups for, um, you know, to get presale links and things like that, and there, are those, that data goes directly to the artist in most cases. There was a company, TuneSpeak, is part of AEG, and they'll share. It's it depends. It's hard. It, I would say it's a challenge in most cases to get it directly. There are some promoters that are more friendly than others. Um, and uh, and but i'm also not knocking on promoters that aren't able to share it because again it's technically they're breaching a contract and i don't want to get anybody in trouble or have them lose their ticketing agreement over it so
4: cool thank you guys
0: thank you i see more questions coming up
4: hi um my name's lucy i'm can you come
0: closer oh, to the mic please hello. Can you yes hello
5: okay. um i'm lucy i'm a senior in high school here in austin um i Recently, like wrote a paper about um, mistreatment in the music industry, especially under major labels. And something that I like struggled with was where the line was between someone being an independent like artist and being a major artist, and like labels too. And like, so I was just wondering, like, in your opinion, like, where does that line like happen, um, and like how? the gray area works from like all of your point of views
3: we kind of sat around debating this when we (laughs) all kind of got together because it's a it's a really great question i don't think there's a, a right answer to it um you know i think major labels can be defined as you know the big three but um there's a lot of gray area once you get into the middle you know a label like secretly is you know completely independently owned there's no kind of Outside factors or outside investors that are able to influence kind of the way the business runs, um, but there are some bigger companies that are independent because they aren't owned by one of the big three labels. They aren't corp- They aren't you know um, corporately owned, but they might have a lot of venture capital kind of in the wings. They might have a lot of people on their board or who are silent investors who do have. Kind of a say in terms of the way they the way they do business or who they sign or the way they kind of, what the kind of deals they do, so yeah, it's a really tricky question. Um, and now it's like it's it's kind of even trickier in that you know a lot of you know these independent distribution companies are being bought by major labels. So are you independent if the company that's putting your music out is owned by a major label? It but you know if you're doing everything yourself and you're kind of doing your own marketing and you're running your own business. That sounds pretty independent to me. So I think that, yeah, again, there's a lot of gray area um, in terms of what what um, independent means. So I think we kind of all just agreed let's call it a, let's call it an ethos and let's call it a spirit um, and, and start there. And then you know, once you start getting into kind of the more kind of business side of things, you can just kind of start picking it apart. But yeah, I hope that answers the question.
2: So really, if you're signed to secretly, you're independent. But if you're signed to any of the other labels, it's questionable. Yeah. Right?
3: Well, I'll, we'll say yeah. that for today. Okay. Yeah.
2: That, that, that works. I like that.
3: Yeah.
0: Well, I- Thank you. you know, in, independent is, is really, when we, you say it's an ethos, it's a mindset. I think for us all, it's a purpose, as I said. And it's great to have, in, in business, it's great to have a purpose that's greater than your job, which means that you're serving something. And independent, to me, is when you contribute to culture. You, it's one of the last resort of freedom of speech. Being on stage live or recorded, it's 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 part of that's the the moment in an artist growth phase when you're you're you you're expected actually to express yourself musically creatively on stage without too many limitations, and that's that's so critical to diversity in culture and cultural diversity. So there's no real boundary, but that's really a mindset.
3: And that can happen on a major label, too. I mean, I think there's a lot of artists that that you know either are able to maintain creative control or have asked for creative control and are putting out music in an extremely honest and pure way that yeah. despite the fact that they have a bigger foundation um are still doing it with that spirit
0: so. yeah, 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 there's no black and white or or good or bad um as I said, it's more mindset that may indeed happen. But the reality is that music is very special. If you want to write a book, you have five major book publishers in the world that have definitely a perspective on what needs to be written and published. Uh, if you want to, to do a net uh, production, like a movie or a series, again, there are five people that can say yes or no and, and make it happen in a big way and impact culture. Uh, so there's a concentration in, in, in the other sides of the arts, which is much stronger than in music. And that's why music is so vital to culture because as I said, it 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 can really change things and innovate and make impact in the discourse, in the mentality, in in, in and and really have an impact on society.
6: Um, hey, my name is Nivash. Uh, I'm a senior at uh, Columbia College Chicago, and um, this question is for Robbie. Um, I am a audio arts major, so my uh, minor is music uh, business and. Alex Fructor had a class called Record Label Operations, um, and he brought in um, a rep from Secretly, uh, and we talked about Jack Jaguar. We did some like case study stuff, um, and I know you have Secretly Distribution, um, so you're kind of all in house. Uh, I guess my question is with the rise of like, um, I guess uh, services like DistroKid, where they have plans of um, artists and pro and um, their label plan, the top tier where you can have as many artists on this. Um, Do you think that there's some kind of synthetic um, independent label that's going on out there that's kind of ruining independency for artists out there? Um, Where I don't know, let's just say a manager or somebody signs up for this uh, DistroKid um, label uh, plan and they sign a bunch of people and kind of create their own uh, network or quote unquote label with a completely different company's um, business model? versus like Secretly, where you have distribution in-house, you have um, label development, A&R, all that kind of stuff that you're working with. Um, these are two super different like operations, but essentially kind of trying to achieve the same goal. Do you think there's some kind of synthetic fallout?
3: Yes and no, I think, um, and I see some of my colleagues from Secretly distribution in the room, so shout out to those guys, and you might be able, I might send you to them after this um, if you really want to <laughs> dig in, but um, because I, I work on the, on the label side. Um, but, you know, I think what you're describing is a record label in a way. You know, if, you know, we work with Secretly Distribution as our distribution partner, and they handle a lot of our, our, our processes, our digital, for example, obviously distributing our music throughout stores. Um, but then we, there's, a, there's a group of us who are focused on the A&R, the marketing, the radio, etc., and are really spending time on that. If you have a team that can do that if you have the resources if whether you're a management company or you're a band and you just kind of have that wherewithal and you're running your your label services through one of these companies you've kind of built a a record label in a way i think that you know i think i'd I'd like to think that we by being super hands-on with our artists with the deal structures we have when we sign them to one of the labels that you're getting a lot more of that whereas i do think a distro kit or a tune core you know, there's tha- there's thousands of artists and thousands of small kind of uh, artists run labels on those through those companies, so it's harder to do it. Um, but I think if you can do it and you're and you and you're thinking about all those boxes to tick as in, in, in terms of what it requires to release music, then you kind of have a label. And I think that you know there should be more labels.
0: So, so yeah. So I want to be mindful of time. There's there's five minutes left to this panel, so maybe we, we get. Two more questions, if they are really short, and if we can get short answers. Okay. Yes and no questions, please.
3: <laughs> <laughs> OK, in, uh, I'm Ugo from Portugal. Uh, and uh, I was just listening about the local scene. Just want to explain a little bit how we made a label in a small city. We went to high schools. We asked kids to give us bands. Uh, and some of these bands, for instance, when RTCC are playing, so she played from Asia to Europe whatever, but we notice right now that we are going back to school to build audiences to explain the kids in the book who does what before music gets to your ears, all the professions. Uh, And we are noticing there are a lot of people, uh, kids playing music, but they don't gather around in bands. Uh, And we're starting to do again all this process. And what I'm asking is who, who gives a shit about indie music from a peripheral country? We can go to Asia, we can go to Europe all over, but it's so hard to get in the U.S. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, I, I, I give a shit. You know, I guess that's what I would say. Um, but again, it's like, uh, you know, there's there's a lot to consume. I know that U.S. and U.K. are very difficult markets to break for a lot of artists. But like, you know, I'm I'm open. Like, I want to hear more of this stuff too. So thank you for expressing that.
5: Yeah. Hey, I'm Ed. I also make music. I'm here at South by for performing music. That's about it. But I had a question for really all of you. Um, I also use Discord and I came up like right before COVID and then just like hit off on TikTok and stuff throughout COVID. Um, Have you had issues with, you talked about like Discord and a, a really active like online audience? Have you had issues transferring that over to this live scene? More so than say 10 years ago when people weren't on TikTok every day or in Discord. People were on Reddit, but like not really, you know? And I feel like the just even in the last 20, 15 years, my whole lifespan, there's been a huge shift between like going out and touring live and saying, you know, this is the only place I'm gonna see this person. And now there's like Instagram Live, TikTok Live, live stream this, live stream that. You know, events here are live streamed, and so have you seen issues getting those Discord people,
0: who Out. maybe are up in their house. Like, that's a great question. Actually, there, there's a <coughs> Nylon, Nylon. You know, the publication, online publication, just wrote a piece on that. Like, like is TikTok cannibalizing live?
2: <laughs> oh, def. I would say definitely no. Like, without a doubt, the hunger for li- the live experience is like supremely unique to the live stream experience. You know, like the live streams were doing great, and then, you know, live music opened back up again, and then the live streams are, from from what I can tell, not, you know, as vibrant. I don't want to be negative, but, like, you know, people would rather pay $25, get an Uber, go to the club versus, you know, watch for free at their house. That's just what we've been finding. Now, gauging demand between streams and ticket sales that's that's been very challenging
0: Well, converting from discord i mean the communities into actual ticket buyers if that's your part of your question is also a challenge i mean that's a challenge for sure
1: and a lot of artists that are being discovered on tiktok you know i'll see something floating around the office and it's like huge on tiktok yada yada it's like okay yes but does it translate to live like if just because somebody's it's you know huge consumption online doesn't mean i always say this all the time but it's like the ability to get somebody to leave their home. You know, if they're, you know, if the, a student after they've come home from school or somebody who has a job after they've come home from work to like eat food, then leave, go find a parking spot and go see this, that's a different level of engagement. And I don't, I haven't figured out the correlation personally.
0: It's challenging. Well, it depends probably artist by artist, I, I would say. Uh, last question, I see Thank that. You Thank you. Thank you. Last question.
4: My name is David, uh, Fabrice knows me as Bruce Houghton's former Berkeley student. Uh, had a chance to chat quite a bit with folks from Wasserman at Polestar, and those those conversations were continuing after South By. Uh, got to hear a lot from agencies at that conference about, you know, artist tools with ticketing platforms. And something that I've been really interested to gauge and, and just ask you about what we have here is with, gamified data uh, and smart data starting to be introduced more into direct to fan experiences with artists through digital tools and AR and uh, gamified experiences and live spaces. How much would you say in your experience and from your perspective that agencies are being hands on with and engaged with that? Like, would you say that that's something that is newer or that they're currently working on and really delving into.
1: Um, I, well, specifically for Wasserman, we you know we've invested a lot in that space. We have like, I don't know how many employees. Uh, some of my colleagues here might be able to tell me, but there there are a number of employees that are like in the Web three, uh, you know, uh, is AR experiences, VR experiences. I am totally out of touch with that. Everybody that I represent could give a shit about that. So um, like when they, you know, I do like regular check-ins and they're like, so who's interested? And I'm like, none of my clients, you know? I, yeah, you don't need my, I don't want to take up your time. So, so yes, as an agency, hugely invested, makes sense for a lot of our clients, a lot more in like the younger pop scene and uh, some, you know, a lot of, of hip hop artists in that scene as well. Uh, but in what I do, zero, <laughs> so.
0: All right. I have to to uh, unfortunately uh, um, uh, conclude and close this conversation. Um, I really want to thank our panel uh, for for really contributing to and answering all your questions. I hope that uh, we've been uh, helpful today. I want really to thank you all for not only attending but also being very involved and asking so many questions. You know, it's, it was really uh, it was really. Um, uh, not only stimulating, but uh, uh, very nice to see that uh, our topics uh, resonated and, and that you liked it. Um, this is an ongoing conversation, and certainly it's a fight. We're never going to stop fighting for the artist, and for especially for indie music and indie artists. And so, th- th- if anything, we, you know, continue to fight. Let's fight all together to help r- raise the tide and, and make it happen for everyone. Thank you.